Thank you, Kevin. Um, for those who may not know, um, appreciate Kevin praying for Greg and Tanya this morning. Uh, just to bring you up to speed quick, Greg is one of the pastors here at GPC. Um, been here for a long time as a pastor, about a year or so, maybe not quite even that long. Um, but Tanya went in last night with pain uh, in her chest at the hospital, and they did some uh, tests, and she's having gallbladder surgery and should be out by about 1 o'clock. Uh, so just to put some context around that for you, you can continue to pray for them uh, today. All right? Okay. Everyone enjoy the snow this morning? You guys are sick. You're all snow-sick people. Hey, this, this Caribbean-raised boy didn't necessarily appreciate that, but that's okay. It's, it's good to have you. And those who love it want more, and that's okay. I'll give you that, that space for this morning. Uh, well, I'm glad to have you here. Thanks for, for coming. And those who listen online uh, later, grateful to have you listening as well. Thankful for your presence with us virtually. Um, one of the things that I realized recently is that I actually really enjoy, uh, there's a little quirky part of me that if you talk to me for any amount of time, you'll know pretty quick, that I actually enjoy... Um, in my spare time, especially in the, um, the late spring, summer, and early fall, watching some of these long um, bike races that happen in Europe. And part of the reason I enjoy that is because the scenery in Europe that we get to see is pretty amazing. Some of these races go through some of these small towns like you see here, and I think this is in Italy, uh, with these cobblestone streets. It's a very romantic kind of a feel and, you know, beautiful areas. Um, the history there is tremendous, and the, the mountain vistas are significant, and guys going up and down the mountains and going through little villages like this one. And, and sometimes they actually will, will route a, a bike race with about 180 cyclists through cobblestone streets like this, and it kind of looks like this when they do that. You have all these people on bikes riding up a hill on cobblestones with homes right across them, and you have all these spectators uh, on both sides creating kind of a cacophony of noise, of screaming and yelling as they ride up. And as you look at this picture, there's actually two two kind of groups involved in this. Over here on this side, you have the people who are the, the viewers, the participants, or the, excuse me, the viewers. They're watching the action. They're seeing what's happening. Many of them are taking pictures of what's going on. You can be sure that they're cheering for their team and against their team that they don't want to see win. In fact, you'll notice, if you can see it all the way in the top corner, this guy isn't too happy with whatever's going on. He's actually yelling and pointing at somebody, which is about what we do when we're at a sporting event, particularly if you can be inches away from your favorite player or cyclist or whatever it might be, as is the case in cycling, at least in Europe. And so you have these people on either side, and, and you can be sure if we had thought bubbles going above their heads on each one, you would say, you could see them thinking, why is my guy all the way back there and not up here? Or why did he jump off the front that early, and why are they not working together better? And they have all these thoughts and critiques about the way that the race actually should be raced, and the way that their guy should actually be racing. And then you have the other group of people, which is all these people who are actually suffering going up the hill. These are the guys, about 180 or so in that range, 150, who are actually putting in the work of many times four or six hours on the bike and, and doing all that they can. And what they're doing is essentially getting critiqued by those who are on the sideline. And, you know, that's just the way that things work, and we know that. And the reason I bring this up is not just because I enjoy cycling, but because it's a metaphor for life in many ways, that, that there are people uh, relative to your life and to mine where, where we actually realize that, you know, we are going through... We are actually going through life, and you are in the race. Like, you are in the... the uh, on the journey. You are in it. You are participating in it. You're not just observing it. And so when I bring a series to you like this series that we're doing, and the series that we're in right now is simply called this, The Biggest Thought That You'll Ever Think. And the biggest thought you'll ever think is the thought you think of, I'm saying, when you think of God. And, and the reason I start with this cycling thing is as we think about God, 
there are two ways that you can look at God. You can look at him from the participant or from the observer side, taking pictures of seeing from the outside, being a little bit removed from the action, and looking at God and looking at God's interaction in someone else's life and saying, why would they handle suffering that way? Why would they see God in this way? And, and we can look at God kind of from a distance and observe and critique God as if he's kind of in some kind of a laboratory. That we're just kind of taking pictures of him and kind of step, stepping aside. But the reality is that you and me are actually in the business of life. You are raising children. You are, like I am and like Kevin is, getting older every day. And as we get into new phases of life, all of a sudden you begin to realize there's things that I maybe didn't accomplish yet. There's dreams that may not be being realized. There's things that I wish would be different about my children, about my grandchildren, about my own past that I can no longer change. There's worries about our future, that we are actually in the race. And when you actually try to see God by being in the race, you see what does it mean that God is a God who um, is compassionate toward the suffering in the process of suffering. It means something very different than those who are on the outside critiquing kind of a theological or a, a more distant view of God. And so in this series, the biggest thought you'll ever think, I want to recognize that you are in the battle, that you are in the mess of life. You are the ones, and I'm with you, going up the hill. Our daily existence is full of overcoming struggles. The first struggle is actually waking up getting out of bed and finding the coffee maker is the next struggle. And then shoveling the snow this morning is the next struggle off of a poor night's sleep because maybe you have young children is the next struggle. And life is full of all this. And so my interest for you in this series is that you can see God in the race that you are in. You can see his presence in that space, not just as a, an outside, safer observer of who God is. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I, I hope it does. And that's my interest for us here uh, this morning. Now, what I've said in this series, I introduced it last week, is that ideas can drive innovation, but big ideas actually drive transformation. And the big ideas about life drive total systemic change. And I tried to use the illustration of Henry Ford and how he totally transformed transportation. That 150 years ago, there were carriages that were our primary mode of transport in America. There was innovation around what kind of materials to use, new wheels to use and all that. But then Henry Ford came around. Big idea, what if we didn't have horse and carriage? What if we actually had motorized vehicles? And that transformed everything. And so the basis of this concept is actually Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this is where we were last week. These verses are the foundation of where we're going to be for the next, uh, give or take, several months in a couple different bigger series. This is the first installment of a five-week series here this morning. And this is Romans 12, 1 and 2, just to recap. Paul is writing, and he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercy of God, God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And as we talked about last week, that actually means don't be conformed by it. In other words, don't just wake up and reactively be conformed by the patterns or the routines of the world that you live in, but be transformed. Now again, be transformed doesn't mean that you get up and say, I'm going to transform myself. That's not actually the action of that verb. You're not actually being called to be transformed. Rather, you're being called to the renewing of your mind that the renewing of your mind, the changing of your mind, the growth of your mind, the innovation, if you will, in your mind, 
produces the transformation that you want. And so it actually is the catalyst for growth is the renewal of the mind, not transformation on the whole. So by the renewing of your mind. And then the result is you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Meaning, if you want to know what to do with your life, if you want to know who to date, where to work, who to marry, where to move to, what to do with your finances, how you should forgive or not forgive, how do you handle relationships? I mean, we can go on and on. If you want to know what to do, here's what he says. Renew your mind. It will transform you. You won't be conformed to the pattern of this world. And then you will figure out through God's help and the Spirit. You're, you're going to get a sense of this is what God's will is to do. It's very interesting. So on the basis of this concept... The basis of this concept, I'm building this, the biggest thought you'll ever think. And if, it's a, if big thoughts drive transformation, big thoughts about God will drive transformation in your life. And I want to kind of renew your mind um, in this process of learning about who God is. Now, with that being said, here's my problem with the series. Um, where would you start <laughs> if you had to start talking about God? How exactly would you begin? When you think about God and the expanse of where in the world we could go, how would you begin? And, and I had to wrestle that question down to the ground. And I don't know if I got the right or the wrong, but I have one approach. And the approach that I'm going to take with you is what I want to do with you for the next five weeks is I want to um, reveal to you how God is revealed to us through the course of Scripture. I want to reveal to you through the course of revealed Scripture how God is gradually revealed to his people. This morning I want to begin in the book of Genesis, and I want to take us up till about Genesis chapter 12. This is in a period of time before Moses comes into play. And then next week I want to kind of give you a sense of how, how is God revealed in and around the life of Moses in one of the biggest events in the history of the nation of Israel. And then building on that, I want to go into a really dynamic period of Israel's history, and that is how God is revealed in the prophets, what we can see about God there. The following week, I want to go into how is God revealed through Jesus and his teaching. And then the fifth and final week, I want to go into how is God revealed through the New Testament in the early church and in how the early church began to see him. So my interest is in showing to you a broad scope of Scripture and the gradual revelation of who God is and how that builds ultimately to the New Testament and the early church, and seeing God in each of these phases. So this morning, I want to begin in this early phase, um, before there were actually any Christians around. These were just people who were followers of God, followers of Yahweh. Uh, there was no such thing as a Christian yet. There wasn't even a, a sense of who Jesus Christ was. This was just a period of time when people were trying to figure out how do we even think about God in the broadest of terms in the world. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you. I'd love to have you take that Bible with you and um, you know, keep that. It's our gift to you if you don't own one. But Genesis 1, really, you open your Bible, go past the table of contents, and you'll find it. The first book and the first couple of verses of Genesis is where we're going to start here uh, this morning. So Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2 some of you know this because you've taught children's church. You have uh, just know it because you think this is how the Bible begins, and you're, you're right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is the start. Okay? This is just the start. 
Look at these verses again, quick. Verse, verse 1, the beginning God created. So we see the very first thing that the Scriptures reveal to us about who God is is that he is a creator. That he created the heavens and the earth as we know it, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. In other words, there wasn't anything here that God created the world from. It wasn't as if he took what existed and shaped it into what we know, but there was actually nothing around. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament writes writes it this way, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Okay, Now, this term, um, you may have heard that Latin term, ex nihilo, it means out of nothing, that God created out of nothing. And so it's an interesting concept that as the Bible opens, the very first image and picture we have of God is that he is a creator. The the question I ask, and maybe you've asked this too, is (laughs) who wrote Genesis 1? Like, was it Adam who wrote Genesis 1? You know, who was there observing that this was happening, and how do we even have an account of it? And the best history we have is that Moses was the one who actually wrote what we call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Again, if you put your thinking caps on, if you know the history of of the nation of Israel, you know that Moses lived many, many years after Adam would have walked the planet. That that this is a uh, post-event history, a post-event writing of what went on. And then you ask the question, how did Moses know what happened if he wasn't there? Where did he get this information? Was this a dream from God or a vision from God directly? How does Moses know that this is how the world began? It's an interesting question. It yields a lot of very interesting answers and discussion. And here's what I believe I know, that Moses didn't write Genesis 1 or 2 or 3, or really any part of Genesis or any part of Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. He didn't write any part of that with a 21st century view in mind. He wasn't trying to answer 21st century questions when he wrote the book of Genesis. It just wasn't there for him. He wasn't trying to answer our scientific questions in the world in which he lived. It just simply wasn't. Moses, I believe was trying to give to the people of Israel an answer to the question of how did anything come to be, and is there a creator or is there not? He was trying to answer the question of origin without giving a scientific treatise on exactly how things happen, and that would be my view of how we see Moses' interest in the beginning of Genesis. He didn't have a 21st century mindset, but he did have an interest to help the people of Israel understand There is a God, and this God actually is the creator. That the things around you that you see have been created by this God, in contrast to a mindset that was going on at the time called dualism, which we still see today. The dualism is the yin and the yang, the good and the evil, the fight, the epic struggle, um, cosmic struggle between good and bad, and this is where we get volcanoes from. Boom, things come together, and it creates, catalyzes movement, good and bad coming together. In contrast to just things banging together and mashing into each other in outer space, actually there was a creator. In contrast to pantheism or panentheism, where God is all or is in all, in contrast to all that, where I look at a tree and that must be God, or I look at the Grand Canyon, oh, that must be God, or I look at a sunset, that must be God. In contrast to all that, no, 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 God isn't that. God isn't what has been created, that there actually was one God who above creation created it all. And I think this is Moses' interest to his people to say, listen, 
you have come from somewhere, you have come from someone, and you have come from a God who is first revealed as a creator. This is who he is. So with that being said, here's the first thing that I think we learn about God, that everything derives or comes from and is dependent upon the one God, as opposed to all these other viewpoints about the world, that the first thing that this means to me is I'm in the race or I'm in the journey of life, is that everything that I see around me is coming from and is dependent upon the one God who has created. Not the many, not the few, not the couple, but the one God who has created, and that God very personally has created this. Now, I don't know if you have thought about this. I I have, and I may have shared this with you before. I remember... uh, uh, living in my parents' home not too far from here, and, I, and it, was, it struck me one night in particular. And I asked my dad a question that teenagers ask their parents sometimes, and you're never ready for this as a parent, so I, I can't even remember what my dad said, but I'm sure it was fine. Um, I said, Dad, come on. With all the suffering in the world, and there may have just been an earthquake or a tsunami or something, I mean, hundreds of people dying somewhere, right? And, and I, I'm like, God, Dad, why did God create at all? Why even start this whole thing? Like, if suffering is so significant, if suffering hurts and tears apart families, if there's evil and struggle in the world, why? If this is what you knew would happen, why would you create at all? If, if you believe, Dad, if you're telling me that God doesn't need anything, he doesn't need creation to worship him, he actually is self-existent without that, he doesn't need my worship, He doesn't need my resources. He doesn't need my energy. He doesn't need my attention. Like he is totally independent of and doesn't need anything that I give. So why would you create someone's and something that actually you don't even need that results in great suffering across the board for people at all periods of time in all ages? Why create anything at all? (laughs) To which my dad, I think, said, hey, it's time to go to bed. (laughs) I think it's a fair question. I'm sure my dad didn't say that. I'm sure he had something more to say. Maybe it was like, hey, talk to your mom about that. I don't know. I don't remember his answer, not because it wasn't good, but just because I remember the profound nature, the deep impact it had on me of the question of realizing, I think, I think that I don't know what was going on in God's mind, but I do know this. Whatever was going on, He decided it is more worth creating than not. It is more worth creating than not. It is more worth it to create, even with the suffering and pain, than it is not to. And with that, I began to think about it this way. That that creation is actually an act arising out of God's goodness and grace, not of necessity. That when I look, here's what this means for me, in the journey, if I'm on the bike race with you, if I'm struggling up the hill with you, if I'm uh, struggling with the weight of my responsibilities or I'm trying to figure out what the future might be, here's what this means. When you're discouraged, when you feel weighted down, when you wake up in the morning and you see a sunrise, that sunrise isn't there because it needs to be, but because God wanted to give it to you that day. When you go out and you go on a hike in the woods or you shovel the snow after you're tired and back aches from that, you see the beauty of the sun hitting that in just the right way. You might even hear a bird chirping, life in the middle of cold, frozen tundra, right? Like in the middle of all that, any time you have an experience of sea or, you know, 
create or feel an experience with creation, that, that everything that I see and experience is an extension of that goodness and grace that I can look to creation and realize that the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth displays his handiwork, that I get to see in what I have made, not just, well, isn't that canyon beautiful, and isn't that waterfall awesome, and isn't my heart moved, and don't I have an emotional reaction? It's more than that. This is an extension of the grace of God. The flowers that you see, the bees that you hear buzzing, the birds that you hear chirping, the sunrise, the sunset, is a reminder to you in whatever state you're in that there is a creator God who has made this and who speaks to you through that. That creation actually shows God's power and wisdom. That God would have rather created than not And in that creating, it's an extension of his wisdom and power. This is profound to me, too. I don't know how many of you are planning to... Uh, we have a lunch after the service here for all greeters, greeters and ushers at church. This is conservers a reminder to you. Also, if you want free pizza, and here's a chance to join the greeter and usher crew. Okay, there you go, right after church. Imagine for a minute if we go into that lunch, and it's about time to, to pizza is about to be served, and imagine if we decide, you know, we're just going to... Um, we're just going to speak the pizza into existence. Don't bother ordering it. Would someone please give a word? And let the pizza arrive. We'll have pepperoni, sausage, a little bit of meat lovers over there. We'd be waiting for a little while because we don't ever do that. We do not have the capacity. But God has spoken into existence. It's a strange but powerful thought that God has the power to just use words to create reality. We don't have nearly that capacity. And the wisdom that he has actually to set in bounds relationships that we now take for granted. Isn't it funny that the lions actually never get together and think about how to take over humanity? I guess the apes do. Planet of the apes, maybe. But outside of that, I don't think there's any other species of animals that actually get together and figure out how to take over the world, right? Why is that? And again, I would argue that in God's speaking, he has incredible power and wisdom to put in place proper relationships between man and animal, and has from the beginning. So God, as the creator, is independent from, but created out of his goodness and grace, people and animals, etc., to live in the space that he felt like was more worth it than not to create, despite all the pain and suffering that exist. And this is what I see as the work of God. He creates and establishes this order. Now what happens in Genesis very quickly after Genesis 1 and 2 is in Genesis 3 um, and following, Adam and Eve fall into sin and they disobey the one command that God had for them, not to eat of the tree of the fruit of, uh, of good and evil. And so what God does following that is God actually judges man for what he's done. And so begins the problem of suffering and evil right away from the jump in the world. And so God creates, but he also judges his creation. This is the second thing I want to talk about this morning. There's three. The first is that God is a creator, and that's revealed early in the Bible. That's our first exposure to God. The second thing that is our exposure to God is that God is a judge. He judges humanity, which is strange to have as an opening thought about God, but it's true that God created, but then he actually judges a creation that he made. Um, I don't know if that feels good or feels bad to you, but it just is what we see. This is how God has been revealed. And I want to talk about that just for a minute. But when God created, he also set up standards by which his creation should abide by. 
and then when they don't, there's consequences for their actions. Now here's the, the reality is that there's consequences, but there's also grace with every consequence. So when Adam and Eve fall, they're cast out of the garden, but they're given garments of skin uh, to protect them. And they're also promised in Genesis 3.15 that there will one day be a future redeemer. Um, in Latin, here's another Latin term for you. This will be even more impressive. If you use this this week, you get a church bonus star or something. Here, there's a Latin term called proto-evangelium, meaning the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, this is the first place where we see the seed of the gospel or the hope of Jesus being planted. The future that says, the seed of the woman will one day overcome all evil. And we believe that to speak of Jesus as the Messiah, ultimately. But Genesis 3.15, there is a judgment of God, but also grace wrapped in. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, it's a story of almost any sibling group, except they actually did kill each other, not figuratively kill each other. Cain killed Abel. And in the punishment for Cain, God also provided grace for him. He told them he had to go out and work the ground, but then he also said, but no one's going to kill you, Cain. Like, don't worry, I'll protect you at that level. You will not be killed by anyone else. So there's judgment and grace along with that, as there was with Adam and Eve. Even for humanity in Genesis 11, when the great flood comes on, there's punishment across the world, but then God promises I'm never going to do this again to all people. So there's judgment and grace that comes along with it together. So judgment to me doesn't scare me. It doesn't necessarily bother me. It does sober me up a little bit. It doesn't equate, equate me to anger and doesn't necessarily lead to fear. It just is. I would say if you're a parent or if you've been a child, that should cover everybody in the room, uh, you would have had those times either as a child or as a parent when you talk to your kids kids or you've been talked to, and your parents are about to discipline you for doing something. You ate too many cookies, you stayed out too late, um, you cursed at your sibling, you hit him on the head with a mallet, I don't know, whatever kids do with each other, right? And you talk to them, and you say, listen, <laughs> this is, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. To which all kids are like, sure. <laughs> Like, no, you don't understand, like, I don't want to have to do this, but we need to. And the reason is because you're not allowed to hit your brother on the head with a hammer or whatever it might be, right? Like, you, there are certain standards that I need to enforce as a parent, and I don't like to punish or discipline you, like, I don't like it, but I need to because I need to hold you to some standards, and so I am now your judge. And no child in the history of the world has ever said, you are right, I bet it does hurt you more than it hurts me. Like, no one ever says that, ever. All kids are like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're so old you can't even think. And then, then you get in more trouble. And then, but no one has ever said that, right? Have you ever had that moment, even though you feel that as a parent? And you know it's true. And so the situation is similar to us. Like We, we, are, we are infants in the context of God's sovereignty and his omniscience and his omnipresence and his eternality. And so we sit there before God, and he's ready to judge us. And he kind of says, listen, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, but you need to be held to standards, to which we say, no, 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 I don't like that. I don't prefer that. That doesn't feel loving to me to have a God who is a judge. Actually, it's very loving to have someone who's willing to hold you and hold me to a standard. And so God as judge teaches me a lot. First of all, that God as judge teaches us that God does not exist primarily to make us happy. So God doesn't exist, as you think about God, and as we're in the race and the struggle of life and going through the day-to-day, -day, that God is not only creator who's given you so many things, but also immediately on the heels of that, we learn, the Bible reveals that God is also your judge and mine, which means that we aren't the center of the universe, 
and he is. It's better than that. <laughs> it's better than that. He doesn't exist primarily to make us happy. It's better than that. God as judge teaches us that God created us for a purpose that he actually cares about us fulfilling. That God created us for a purpose that he actually cares about us fulfilling. That if you're struggling with identity, you're struggling with purpose, you're trying to figure out what you're doing in your world, what you're doing as a husband or a wife or in your business or in your future. You're trying to figure out how you can make amends for things that didn't go well in the last 5, 20, 30 years, whatever it might be. You're trying to figure out, do you have a purpose? Do you have clarity in, in your own life? I'm telling you, God as judge tells us that there is a reason why we were made and there are certain standards that we are to be held to and that God actually judges us in that space, not because he hates us or because he's trying to ruin us, but that he has a purpose that he actually cares about us fulfilling. And I don't want to be cryptic or mysterious with that. The purpose at the base level is simply this, love God and love others. To love God and love others. So many things fall underneath that. What does it mean to do that? So many things fall under that. When I say purpose, I don't necessarily mean, oh, you're called to be a missionary in outer Mongolia and live under the stars. Or you're called to be doing something vocationally. Hear me on that. I mean the purpose of being drawn into a relationship with God to love him and to love others well. First and second greatest commandment that Jesus said in the New Testament that all the law and the prophets hang on this. All the law and the prophets hang on the idea of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs, love God and love neighbor. Everything hangs on that. You have a purpose. And God actually cares if you do that or not. That is what God as judge teaches me. Not that he hates us, not that he's trying to ruin us, but that God created us and he actually wants something great for you to love him well and to love others well. And he's willing to hold us to that line. In Hebrews chapter 4.13 we see this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That there is this reality that God will see and does see all that we do. And that may scare you, it may not, but that is just how God works. And so he cares about our standards. He cares about our ability to love and express that and to love others well. So here's the situation so far. God has created, the one God has created, and in that we see his goodness and grace extended. And then immediately on the heels of that, we see God as judge, who actually cares that the standards that he's created for us are held. That's, he doesn't exist to make us happy, but to transform and change us to become more and more like him. Now, there has to be, because we have creation and then we have what we call the fall and the sin, there has to be a way forward. What does it look like for humanity to find their way forward? And this is where God comes alongside his people and says, I want to make you a promise. I want to connect with you in a way that will be unlike anything else that you will ever see. I want to connect with you through the family of somebody here that I'm going to connect with named Abraham. And so the next step we see, the next revelation we see, is that God makes a covenant with Abraham to bring salvation and blessing to the whole world. In Genesis chapter 12, we read this up here. We read, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. If you can look up here again, you'll see how many I wills statements there are in this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then he says, you will be a blessing as a result of what I will do. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. The result is all people on earth will be blessed through you. The action of all of this 
work is God himself, that the creator God who recognizes that his people have fallen into sin and future judgment is now saying, I want a better way forward for you than just to keep falling into the judgment of God. I want to provide for you a way or a means to be removed from the natural consequences of your sin and failure. And I'm going to make a covenant with Abraham so that all people on earth can be blessed through him. And this covenant promise in Genesis 12, it's repeated in Genesis 15 and in 17 as well, serves as the foundation of actually the entire Bible, the entire scope of Scripture that shows that God has actually come, not only as creator, as judge, but also as a promise-making God. That he's saying, I'm going to provide a way out of this. I'm going to provide for you something that you will not be able to do on your own. In fact, I will do this. Not you will, but I will. And it goes on and on and on through all of these, these verses. So with that being said, this is the background of what we see, how we see God being revealed from creation through the fall and right up until Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, three things I want to say to summarize this quick, okay? First of all, that God created and shows his power and goodness through that creation. So if you are finding yourself in a place on your journey, in your struggle, in your race that you're on, where you're trying to figure out (laughs) where is the encouragement coming from? Where is the hope coming from? I want to encourage you again. As the sun sets this this evening, as the sun rises tomorrow morning, wherever you are, as you hear a bird chirping, as you see the trees, as you see the nature and what God has created, I want to encourage you again to look. I want to encourage you again to listen. Not out of some mystic hope that maybe something will connect to your soul and maybe some music will come back to mind and maybe you'll have this kind of mm, emotional moment. I'm fine if you have an emotional moment. In fact, I have had this week as I considered again this reality that the creator God, the one God, has created this entire world around me and it is an extension of his goodness and grace. That when I see the beauty of what he has made, it reminds me he created because he wanted to. In fact, he found you and me more valuable, more worth creating than not creating, even with all the pain and suffering that is to come. And so as you look at the world around you, if you need some encouragement, look at the sunrise tomorrow morning and be reminded that didn't just happen, that God the creator put that in place and is speaking to you through that. Secondly, this, that God judges and reminds us that we have a purpose. Now, if you're struggling again with purpose, with clarity, with what you're doing, you're up all night changing diapers, whatever it might be, you're wondering if that stage will ever end. The answer is it will not. It will never end. It will continue to come. I'm just kidding. That there is a purpose and clarity for you, that there is a reason you are here, that God is giving you this idea at at the most macro levels, love God with all that you have and love the people around you. Now it goes on further than that. There's more to say about that, but there is purpose. There is purpose. There's meaning and intentionality for every one of us who have been made. And thirdly, this, that God promises and shows his faithfulness. That God promises to Abraham is going to show his faithfulness over and over and over again. And so as we open the pages of scripture, we begin to see God as creator We begin to see God as judge. We begin to see God as a promise-keeping God and promise-making God. And the pages, as they continue to unfold, and they unfold next week in the second chapter of this five-chapter book, basically, we're going to see God as he interacts with Moses and the people of Israel in an event that becomes the, the biggest event in the history of the nation of Israel that shows God's redeeming purposes. So God is creator. He is also our judge. 
And he is a promise-making, faithful God. And as you are on the journey that you are on, as you are on the fight and the battle that you are on, in the work of it all, I hope that you can be encouraged by what you see, that he hasn't put us here just to make us happy, but that he does have a purpose for us, and he cares that we get on that purpose, and that he is a God who is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And I look forward to having you back next week for chapter 2, part 2 of the biggest thought that you will ever think. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time this morning and for the time to step back into the Scriptures and begin to peel back the pages of the Bible here and see how you began to reveal yourself to people, how we begin to understand who God is through an increasing awareness of how the Bible teaches who you are. So I pray that you would renew our thinking in this, that you would remind us again of what it means that you're a creator, remind us again of what it means that you are a judge of our actions and our behavior, and remind us again of what it means that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. I pray that we would find encouragement in that as we need to this week, and a reminder, renewal of our mind as we work with our children, we work with our employees, we work in our businesses, work with our friends at school, we engage Uh, as leaders on our teams, in the hobbies and the things that we do, that you would help us to see again that there is one God who has made everything and extends his goodness and grace to us, who cares about what we do and has given us a way forward. Continue to move us toward loving you and loving others more and more, we pray in Jesus' name.